Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. This month is Women in Sales Month. That is what the month of October is devoted to. And what we're doing on the podcast is I am interviewing fantastic women in sales leadership so they can share their stories of triumph, of things that have happened, the good, the bad, the ugly, just like we do every single week on this podcast. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of having Michelle Vazana with us. How are you, Michelle? I'm doing well, Wesleyan. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Let me tell you a bit about Michelle. Michelle Vazana is a Vantage Point Performance Chief Strategy Officer and Co-Founder. Vantage Point is the leading global sales effectiveness firm and only sales performance organization that offers diagnostic-based training and consulting solutions. She has more than 34 years of sales and management experience and is a prolific researcher and sought-after speaker. She has conducted the most extensive research on the topic of sales coaching practices, and she's the author of Crushing Quota, as well as a co-author of Cracking the Sales Management Code, The Secret to Measuring and Managing Sales Performance, a book about developing sales strategy and generating company results. So 34 years in sales, many people weren't even thinking that sales was like an actual career or a thing that you could do to make money and not annoy people. How did you start your career and how did you get to where you are today? So I started my career quite by accident. I was a computer science major in college and I was interning for IBM, which was like the dream internship. And they ended up putting me in a sales product center. I was selling computers and printers and that kind of thing. And I liked it and I was pretty good at it. So that really started my trajectory in sales and I've been in sales ever since then. So you guys know how much I love us non-traditional salespeople. I'm a recovering chemist. So I actually have my degree <laughs> in chemistry and I love telling people in college now, college teaches you how to think. So tell me, how did you use that technical background that you got from computer science and translate that into selling the products you were learning about developing and making? So that's a hard question, Wesleyan. I didn't necessarily use the computer science degree, but what I found in getting that degree was it was really hard and it required a lot of dedication and um, just effort. And I also found that when I first got in sales, I actually first got into career sales in Xerox after I you know, graduated and did my internship with IBM. So I became a career salesperson in Xerox. And what I found is that the hard work and dedication that it took to actually get that degree served me very well in sales because I was the first one in there in the morning and I was the last one in there in the evening and I worked harder than anyone else on my team. So that hard work that got me through school actually served me well in sales because, you know, they'll tell you it's a numbers game, which I don't fully believe, but I do know that if I didn't apply that level of effort that I did early on in my career, I never would have been successful. Mmm, that's so good. Those core skills that we get in college, you know, having to prepare for these really difficult exams and not like I would have friends be like, oh yeah, I'm just going to study the night before. I'm like, that's not even a thing, right? And how that <laughs> prepares you for being ready for sales. Like you don't just show up to a sales call. You have no. to prepare for a sales call. It's like the same principles apply. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's all about the preparation and it's really all about agility, in my opinion, especially now, because the world's changing so fast. As we know, with the pandemic, the economy, there's just all of these things that we don't have control over. And we have to figure out how to successfully navigate situations like that. So sales more than ever before 
just requires flexibility and agility in our experience. Mm, flexibility and agility. We'll dig into that a little bit deeper, but I want you to take us through your journey at Xerox. You said you became a career salesperson. What does that mean? Well, it means that I had the title of salesperson and that was my job and I had a quota immediately and I had to hit that quota and I did. And I was in sales for Xerox for five years before I got into management. And then after that, I got into training. Mm. And so at Xerox, they have this program where they took high-performing sellers who were on a management track and actually made them trainers. And that's how I got into this whole idea of sales training and sales enablement way back when in my late 20s. And this seems like a long time ago, but I loved it. And I found that I was actually really good at coaching people and training people. And I got very interested in that. And then I started pursuing some advanced studies in that space. So I've been in sales and or sales management and training that entire time. I've never really gotten out of that. Mm. So I know it may seem like a, a while ago, but when you first got into sales management, chat with us, what are the differences of being an individual contributor and moving into management for you? Everything was different. Everything. You're no longer setting your own trajectory, right? You're no longer going out and getting the deals on your own. You have to equip other people to do that. And management is a lot more science. Sales is a lot more art. And I believe that the most successful managers, they put a process in place. They give their sellers predictability in the way they manage. And I was very fortunate that I had fantastic sales managers at Xerox and I learned a lot from them. And that equipped me to be a much better manager and leader because people want consistency. Mm. They want predictability. They want talent and they want you to have come up with good ideas. They don't want you to do their job for them. They want you to equip them to do their job better. And that's a different skill set. Mm. Right? A lot of managers that were former really high-performing sellers, they get into management and they think, well, this is just, I'm going to do the same thing I did before, but on a broader scale. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. And the managers that have the hardest time are the ones that go from individual contributor to super seller, but they're not managing their team in a predictable way. Mm, absolutely. But when you move into management, it's like, okay, I did this really, really good. And so now I want a team of mini me's and you know, everybody's going to sell just like I did. And I'm going to tell them yeah. to do the same things I do. And now, oh wait, you guys aren't hitting quota. Let me go out there and close the big deals for you. That is like right. a 101 failure to be management. Yes, that's right. That's right. Couldn't agree more. So as you continue to work up the track, you transitioned into training. And so I really like what Xerox, the program that they had, I'm not sure if they still have it today, but you go from being a salesperson, then a top salesperson, and now a manager. And it's like, you're leading your team well, we want you to train other people. So when you stepped into that role of training manager, trainer, how did your perspective on what sellers need to learn change? I think what I learned very quickly is you can know a lot, but you have to be able to do it. You have to be able to execute. And I remember as a trainer, just being relentless about, you know, role playing, going through scenarios and having people try stuff. And I didn't care as much about what they knew. I cared about what they could do in the moment when it mattered. And so for me, it was really more about making sure that I kept throwing realistic scenarios at them, having them navigate those scenarios, giving them feedback, having them watch. We used to videotape people back in the day, and then we'd have them go back and observe themselves and give very thorough feedback. And we gave them a rubric and all that to use. And people learn so much by watching themselves interact and seeing what their mannerisms are, what their body language is, what's their word choice, how effective are they interacting with the customer and 
there's just, there's no substitute for that. Mm. Right. From actually doing what it is you need to be doing versus talking about it, learning about it. You have to do it. And so for me, it was really all about diving into not only preparation, but how does that preparation lead to highly effective interpersonal conversations with customers? The experiential nature of training. And I think now a lot of companies and trainers have gotten away from that, right? They just want to stick these new hires in a room for like two weeks. And they're like, we're going to throw things down your throat. We'll do a little bit of role playing, but oh, now you're ready to go sell. Now you're ready to hit the phones. Now you're ready to go demo. And they don't really get so much hands-on anymore. That's true. Um, Not only do salespeople not get trained that way enough anymore, they get a lot of online training. They get a lot of asynchronous training and they get a lot of product training. And the problem with that in today's day and age is that customers have access to almost all the same stuff as sellers have. Mm -hmm. I can go on your website and learn a lot about your products. So the role of the salesperson of, let me tell you what I have to offer and tell you how that's going to meet your needs. It's not the same anymore because buyers are so much more educated and they're more discriminating and they're less available. Mm -hmm. So it creates this sort of um, difficult situation for not only people who are enabling sellers, but the sellers themselves. How do I get what I need in a virtual environment where a lot of my training is asynchronous? There's a higher ratio of sellers to managers than ever before. And they're relying a lot on AI, like recording pitches, recording sales calls, and then having systems analyze them. And it just seems like the personal nature that I really benefited from significantly early in my career and the people that work for me benefited from is harder and harder to achieve just because mm-hmm. of the, the context within which we sell. Absolutely. You know, I think about and I talk a lot about how adult learners learn, right? And everyone cannot just be stuck in front of a computer and told to watch a gazillion online trainings and then execute right. it, Right. Some people actually need to read it on a piece of paper, like actual paper. Some people need that tactile bit and some people need both. They need to see it. They need to hear it. They need to see it, right? And we are doing such a disservice to our salespeople by putting them in a box, throwing them in this, and then the product training. Like, again, I come from a very technical background. And the type of companies that I work with are usually those technical people. I say they're really smart people. They have no clue how to sell. And so I'm like- (laughs) No, nobody actually cares about your engineering specs. Nobody actually cares about how this is made or what happens to this. It is about what the customer needs. And I love to tell salespeople, one of my favorite new quotes is, I don't blame you, I blame your boss. (laughs) Because the thing is, it's like they're only doing what they're told. And you hit so many nails on the head when you're saying like, what we're doing is we're going away from those core things that we know work. Well, not only that, Wesleyan, there's been a lot of research recently, some of it conducted by Vantage Point, some of it conducted by others, that isolate the fact that buyers are really demanding, right? They're demanding. They want you to focus on them. They have more confusion in their buying journeys than they've ever had before. They have an overabundance of information available to them, and they're confused. And so instead of just relying on salespeople to kind of meet their needs, they're relying on salespeople to help them make sense of this crowded, chaotic, often conflicting marketplace they face. Mm -hmm. So sellers not only have to know their own products and services, they not only have to know the customer, they have to know what information the customer is likely to access Mm -hmm. and use in their decision-making process. And they have to be able to reconcile that Mm -hmm. for that customer. 
So they have to provide more of a consulting advisory role, in my opinion, more than ever before because of this chaotic landscape that buyers face. And so how does one, whether they're an individual contributor or they're a manager, they realize, and no, let's talk about managers because I feel like the salespeople get too much flack. How does a manager that is sitting in an organization today and they realize that the training that they have available for their salespeople is ineffective, but they have no clue what to do because they weren't trained themselves. How do they go about really taking the first steps to change the dynamics of what's happening in their organization? It's a good question, and it's a hard question, Wesley, because managers are busier than they've ever been. I mean, sales managers today are, are significantly more stressed and pressed than they were when I first became a manager because there's just more available, there's more tools, there's bigger teams, there's just more expectations around technology usage. So they have a more chaotic, more crowded schedule and environment than they've ever had. And organizations can't depend on their sales managers to be the primary trainers of their salespeople. And when they do that, it burns out the manager and it underserves the seller. So there's this sort of balance between organizational learning where I can teach my salespeople how to sell and managers who coach to that and help reinforce that. That's always been the rub, right? No matter how good your training is, your manager has to coach to it and reinforce it. And I think that's not getting any easier, but what I think organizations are doing well today, they're incorporating a lot of the sort of in the job flow of sales into content management systems, into playbooks, into other sorts of tools. They're actually quite helpful but it's incumbent upon the manager to ensure that sellers use that information, that managers use that information when they're coaching your sellers. I mean, I got a perfect case in point about what happens when managers don't attend to this well. I was working with GE several years ago and one of the sales managers I was working with said, you know, I can't get my people to put the information in the CRM. They're non-compliant, right? Which is a common theme, right? Every organization struggles with CRM adoption. So I actually flew to this manager's location and followed him around for a day. And I was observing one of his one-on-ones that he conducted with his salespeople. It was hilarious that I'm gonna recount this to you. So I'm sitting in the room with the sales manager. The salesperson walks in, no notepad, no notes, nothing. The manager has salesforce.com on his computer. The salesperson has nothing. So while they're having the conversation, the manager is updating the CRM. He's updating the opportunity notes within the CRM. And I just sat back and I smiled. And then at the end of the conversation, we had a debrief and I said, well, do you have a sense for why your salespeople are so low on their level of compliance with the CRM usage? He goes, I don't know. I keep telling them to update it, tell them, and they, and they won't do it. And I said, well, what happened in your one-on-one? Who had the CRM pulled up? Mm. Oh, I did. Who was updating the opportunity notes? I was. I said, so if I'm your seller, what motivation do I have to go mm. spend time updating the system when I know you're going to do it for me? Wow. Wow. And that's not atypical. I mean, managers are usually one that take all the notes during the one-on-one. They're the ones that send the follow-up email that says, here's what you agreed to. Put that on the salesperson. And I had one manager say, well, wait a minute. Do you mean that I should demand that my salespeople take notes? And I said, no, absolutely not. Just ask them to send you an email after the meeting summarizing all the commitments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you won't have to ask them to take notes. They'll do it. They'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. I love that example. And I really love it because it's like, Sometimes a sales manager is so clueless, right? They don't realize like, well, what am I doing wrong? I'm just doing what I always knew to do. And the onus is on the salesperson. You have to put some of the responsibility on them, right? I I have an example too of somebody that I'm working with and she was saying, she was like, yeah, well, 
the person isn't doing this, 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 and that. And I'm like, okay, so what have you done to enforce what you've told them to do? Well, I keep telling them and I keep telling them, I was like, have you put anything in writing? Have you ever asked them to say, what, this is my plan for the day? This is my call plan. These is who I'm gonna contact, all of that. And she's like, no, I'm supposed to do that. I'm like, yeah. Like if you want to have that clear two-way communication, you must give them things that they have to do and by dates. And when they don't do it, don't just brush it off. Say, hey, I asked for this on this date and that's not acceptable. You don't have to do anything on the HR chain, but you let them know that their behavior is not acceptable. That's how we drive change. Yeah. A lot of managers that I've worked with and I've worked with over the years, thousands of sales managers, and a lot of them feel that that's micromanagement. Mm. And I said, well, the only time micromanagement is necessary is when you have an underperformer. Mm-hmm. And I said, otherwise, micromanagement isn't necessary. And when you set guidelines and set expectations, that's not the same thing as micromanagement. In fact, if you set guidelines and expectations, you probably won't have to micromanage because your people are very clear on what you expect, why you expect it, and how it's going to help them. Yeah. Right? So it's almost like you can't come into a relationship after five or six conversations and then set expectations. You have to set them very early on. Yeah. That's the same with your customers. That's the same with your sellers. Yeah. Right? So managers who don't take the time to put some structure in place have sellers that are basically lost. And I had another sales manager when I talked to him, we actually called, we have a name for this. It's called the um, culture of dependence. Mm. When you don't set clear guidelines and sellers become overly dependent on the sales manager, we actually have a word for that because it's it's so prevalent. And I had a manager, he came through our training, um, said, oh my God, I just realized that I've been making a huge error. And I said, well, tell me about it. What is it? And this was actually a pretty high-performing manager. He said, I hire a lot of salespeople. You know, over the years, I've hired many. And one of the questions they ask is, what do you expect from me? And my answer is, I expect you to make your number. And he said, now I realize how stupid that was. Because what they're really asking me is, what do I have to do to succeed here? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm in sales. Obviously, I need to make my number. But how do I make my number? Mm -hmm. So their question, even though that wasn't how they asked it, was really, help me understand what it takes to be successful here. Mm -hmm. And the manager just sat back and said, wow, you know, I thought I was being very wise, but I was actually being pretty stupid because I wasn't being helpful at all. They were asking for clarity. They were wanting clarity. And I was just give them, you know, platitudes. Mm. Yeah. That's so good. Really stepping into their world, right? Like, let me remove myself. Just like we tell salespeople, stop Mm -hmm. talking about products. Stop talking about product. How about you stop talking about yourself and your one-on-ones? How about you step into the world of the salesperson and really help them to understand that, hey, it's not about me. It's about you. How can I help you achieve? And then that balance of micromanaging and not managing A lot of times, you know, there's that Pareto's principle, the 80-20, your top 20%, they got it. They know what they're going to do. But that bottom Mm -hmm. 80, when you say, here is a sample of how you should spend your day, that gives them so much relief because they're like, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. How do I spend eight hours doing this, this, or that? Like offer it to them. And if they push back, then you have a conversation, but you give them something, right? I, I don't like right. to equivocate salespeople to children, but you know, sometimes I, I have some really great examples. And it's like, if I just tell my, yeah. my child to go, I just want just go do your homework. I have lots of homework. Like, do, should I yeah. start with math? Should I start with reading? Right. Do, right. Should I get on the computer? What should I do? And if you say, go do your math homework and then read and then do this, 
then they figure it out. And it's just That's like right. your salespeople. Give them a little bit of structure and let them figure it out themselves. Well, what's really beautiful about what you just said, Wesleyan, was that there's a lot of research that backs that up. There was some research done and published in Harvard Business Review around seller motivation. And most people think sellers are coin operated. You just pay them more and they'll do what you want. But that's really not the case. And they studied three things in this particular research project. They took a look at incentive compensation, internal achievement drive, and clarity of task. And clarity of task was defined as the activity that sellers are asked to do is directly related to the results you're holding them accountable to achieve. Mm. And the only element of those three, the only factor that really was strongly related to seller motivation was clarity of task. They want to know what to do to succeed. Mm. In fact, incentive compensation was number three out of three regarding its impact. Mm. So 34% of the variation in seller motivation was attributable to clarity of task. And that is the manager being abundantly clear with what is expected of the seller, when and why. Mm. And our research supports that as well. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, it's such a misnomer that salespeople are only motivated by money. And even for people looking to get into sales, they're like, ah, no, you guys are like used car salespeople. You just want money, money, money. But that's not what it's about, right? Mm -mm. For so many salespeople, it's maybe it's about money, but it could be because they're the first person in their family to ever make six figures, or they want to retire their mom, or they have three kids and they want them all to go to private school because they went to school in the inner city, right? right? It's right. like what the yeah. money does for them. And right. when you as a manager understand like their why, like why they show up every day and do what they need to do, it helps you to lead them better. And in turn, you have an organization, you have a culture where they're like, no, I'm not going anywhere else. I don't care how much money you offer me. I want to work for you, right? Mm -hmm. Because that misnomer of people don't leave companies, they leave managers. It's very true. And it so true. you have, you knowing underneath what really motivates them is how you have that strong team that exists forever. Yeah, fair point. So now I want to transition a little bit and you are a woman in sales. You own your own business. You've been in leadership. You've had many, many, a, a fantastic career as a woman in sales. So share with us one of your biggest challenges that you've had to overcome. Well, one of them was that I felt like I had to work harder to prove myself. And I'm hoping things have changed a bit because, you know, I'm not young. So I had to work really, really hard to get the same opportunities that I felt like some of my male colleagues had. But the other one that, you know, there's no way to, to make this pretty is there was a fair amount of sexual harassment, not only from internally within my company, but with customers. Yeah. And it's something that most men don't even think about when they go into sales. They don't worry about that. They don't worry about offending their boss when they get an unwanted attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't have to worry about that. Or if they do, it's much rarer. And so I want to tap into what you do today, your actual organization, because you're doing some fantastic work research and really speaking to the sales managers. Chat with us about yes. that. Yes, we've actually shifted gears in the last few years, Wesleyan. We're actually working with the entire sales force now. And our most recent research is actually around sales agility. We have a new book, The Sales Agility Code, Deploy Situational Fluency to Win More Sales, being published by McGraw-Hill. It's coming out in April of 2023. And that's based on a tremendous amount of research that was initiated by Florida State University and then validated and extended by Vantage Point. So we are a sales training company who has a strong philosophy of studying high performers, analyzing what they do, and then building training programs and intellectual property to replicate that. 
and we do ongoing research. We've been doing research for the entire 14 years that we've been in business. And so our most recent research has really been around how do the most high-performing sellers adapt and adjust their behavior based on changes in the situations they face. Hmm. And it's pretty fascinating because about five years ago, there was a lot of sort of scuttlebutt that consultative selling was dead. Hmm. And, you know, consultative selling said it's either all about challenger now or it's all about agility now. And we did find that the highest performing sellers are agile, but we also found that consultative selling is a very powerful, important foundation for being able to flex and adjust your approach. So it's very fascinating what we found because we know that there's different levels of agility within the sales force. There's organizational agility where managers, sales managers have to be able to quickly adjust salesperson effort and focus based on changes in the marketplace or changes in the organization. We also know that the most effective sellers flex their behavior based on the buying situation they face. Mm. But based on more recent research, we also know that there are elements of the buying situation that are more important than other ones. And one of them is the buying journey. How do buyers psychologically navigate that buying journey? Mm -hmm. What emotions are involved and how do those emotions impact their decision to buy and how they buy? Mm. So that's what this new book is all about. It's about how do the most successful salespeople, sales managers, and organizations employ agility to not only outperform others, but to be able to change in a rapidly changing environment. Wow. So that's what we do. We teach sales agility at all levels in the organization. That is pretty amazing. Last week, I I taught a session um, to colleagues on thought leadership. And I was like, you got to figure out what nobody else is talking about and talk about that, right? That's right. I would say that sales agility tops the list because in Mm -hmm. listening to the way that you describe what sales agility is, it is very true that, and so one thing I I definitely want to highlight is all these fancy new methods. I'm like, yep, uh I've done all the sales trainings out there. (laughs) I've done everything out there. And as you said, that baseline consultative selling that came out, I don't know, 50s, 60s, I don't know when it came out, but that is the core basis of how good sellers sell. They take the bits and pieces from the new methodologies and they employ them, but they're not going to go all in and say, oh yeah, you're not this kind of salesperson. So you're not going to be good if you do this or do that. It is really about being agile. It is about the adaptability, the ability for you to sit in front of somebody that is an engineer and I'll say speak engineer and sit in front of a room of members of the board and speak to them in that way. That is really what helps good sellers sell. So I am excited and I would love an early copy of that book because that sounds amazing. Absolutely. We're happy to get you one, Leslie. Awesome. So in your very diverse, expansive career, give me something that has impacted the way that you lead, either personally or professionally. Okay. So I was asked the same question pretty recently when I'm glad because I had to think about it. <laughs> like, wow, that's a big, fat question. Um, so we had a former CEO, his name is Joe Terry, and he was our CEO for a couple of years and he was a phenomenal leader. And one of the things that he taught me that was critically important in my own leadership style is he said, you know, you have to think about the health of the organism before the health of the individual, Mm. because if you have a high performing individual who is not good for the company and is bringing the company down in any way, shape or form, you have to exit that person, no matter how high of a performer they are, because they're going to bring the entire company down. And so he said, every filter that you have as a leader has to be the health of the company, the health of the organism, the health of the interpersonal 
relationships and the way that we work as a company, as a culture. And I had not thought about it like that. Mm. And it just changed the way I think about how I lead, how I interact, the decisions that I make. They're all about the health of the organism. And I've had to make some very hard choices and decisions in the last few years based on the health of the organism that I may not have had the courage or foresight to make prior to getting that insight. Mm, wow. That is amazing. And I'm glad that you had time to think about that because that sounds absolutely wonderful. And in all that you have done through your 34 years of sales experience, I would say that the impact that you have made on the sales world is absolutely amazing. And I am so glad that I got to interview you today. As am I. Thank you. So tell the audience, what is the one best way to get in contact with you if they want to reach out? Go to our website www.vantagepointperformance.com. We're actually having a new website. It's going to come up in about a week, but there's an information request there. If you want to get in touch with me or anyone at Vantage Point, you want to learn more about our solutions, go and you know request to speak with us and we'll get right back with you. We'd love to chat with you. Awesome. Well, Michelle, again, thank you for sharing your time, your talent, and your expertise with us. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Wesley. It was a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.